Good morning. <laughs> uh, my name is John Allen. Welcome to Risen Church. As Katie mentioned earlier, as uh, our mission as a church, we exist. Excuse me, I'm getting hung up on my. Here we go. Um, we exist to share life in Christ, our risen Lord, with one another uh, and our city and beyond. And so often people aren't really sure um, what that means, right? Like it means, when you say sharing life in Christ, or you talk about life in Christ, essentially what that means is being a disciple, right? Like it, it's, if you're a Christian, then you're a disciple of Jesus, right? Like that's kind of the idea there. Um, because sharing life in Christ means being a disciple and making disciples of each other and our city and beyond. But what does that mean? Right? Like, what does it mean to make disciples? Even though it's basically the marching order that Jesus gave his church in the Great Commission, uh, which Dave mentioned earlier, right? Matthew 28, 18 through 20. This is our Great Commission. These are our marching orders as the people of God, as Christians, as disciples. We are called to make disciples who make disciples, right? Matthew 28, 18 through 20. This is what Jesus said. After he's resurrected, he's about to go and ascend into heaven at the right hand of the Father. And this is what he says. Jesus, verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth. So not just heaven, not just spiritual authority, not just Sunday morning authority, right? All of it. He looks at everything in this world and goes, that's mine, that's mine, that's mine, that's mine, that's mine, that's mine. All of it. He's king, right? So all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So this is what we're all about. right? We're all about making disciples who make disciples of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Again, there's that word, right? Disciples. What's that mean? What does it mean to make disciples? What does it mean to be a disciple? Again, this is our purpose. This is our purpose as a church. It ought to be the purpose of every church. If they're a real church, it is. Right? Otherwise, honestly, it's just an imposter. That's just the reality. Right? And, and when I say risen church, I'm not just talking about the church staff or the pastors or the church leaders. I'm talking about you. I'm talking about the people, right? The priesthood of all believers, the chosen race, the holy nation. In fact, as I've said before, I say it often, I will continue to say it often, my role as a pastor is to equip you, the saints, all of you. If you are filled with the Spirit and you are following Jesus, you are a saint. It doesn't mean you've got to do some crazy miracle or do something some radical thing. I don't know. It's all about what Jesus has done for you. Will you accept that by faith? Then that's grace. Or, or if you accept it by grace through faith in Christ, guess what? Welcome to sainthood. Seriously. And so my role as a pastor is to equip you, the church, for the ministry and to enter into it with you. 
right? This is what we do. And so then together we engage, embrace, equip, empower, and encourage one another in this great commission of making disciples who make disciples of Jesus Christ. The greatest honor and the greatest mission in eternity is to participate in this together. This is who we are. This is what we do. We make disciples. Who make disciples? Of John Allen. No, of Jesus Christ. Notice that the Great Commission is not to put on a big event surrounding one professional Christian who's able to make a lot of converts. That's not what it says. That's not what it is. And then, you know, get those converts to go out and get more people to come listen to the professional convert maker. Right? Like, this may surprise some of you, but that's not a local church. It's a rally. And listen, there's nothing wrong with a rally unless you call it a church and think that the whole point of Christianity is about this one event. You can draw huge crowds that way. You can really impress people that way. You can even influence people to associate with Christianity that way. But a church isn't just an event. Church is a people who consistently draw near to God and one another and point one another to Jesus continually. There's a huge difference between impressing or influencing people and making disciples who make disciples. Converts begin to associate with Christianity. But to be a disciple of Jesus, it means you've been personally introduced to him and you personally know him. So you can influence people from a distance, but if you want to make disciples, it requires relationships. And we're all called to make disciples who make disciples of the person, Jesus Christ. Corey Ten Boom, which is like the greatest name ever. What's your name? Corey Ten Boom. That's, her life was pretty uh, in line with that too. But Corey Ten Boom uh, once said, You're either a missionary or a mission field. There is no in-between. Charles Spurgeon cut right to the chase, right to the heart of it. He said, you're either a missionary or an imposter. Now, some of you may realize this morning that you're a mission field, and if that's you, then welcome. Welcome. I'm so glad you're here. Like my prayer is that you leave here this morning commissioned as a disciple. And if you don't, then that you would continue to join with us each week until you join with us as a commissioned disciple, <laughs> however long that takes. We want to walk with you in this. We're, we're here for the journey. Amen? Jesus said that he is the light of the world, though, and, and, and that we're called to be children of light. He said that you are even the light of the world. But you can't say that you're light if you're not connected to the source. Right? You're you're, you're not called to just be a light bulb. Right? You're called to be a light. And if there's no light, then you're not connected to the source. Which means you might have the appearance of godliness, but you're denying its power, as 2 Timothy 3.5 says. Like a disconnected light bulb. That's a dangerous place to be because you think you're good. It's almost better to just be 
a broom or something because, you know, there's no way that's given off light. You know better. And you're like, wow, I at least realize my circumstance here is dangerous. You follow me? That's not being a disciple, though. But then again, there's that word, disciple. What's it mean? What does it mean? You may hear terms like evangelism and discipleship thrown around a lot with church people, right? Like, and often people tend to put them in two separate categories. Like, you've, you've got the evangelism strategy, and then you've got the discipleship strategy, right? You even get separations in budgets. You might not realize that, but it's true. It happens a lot, right? This is kind of how it goes. But the Bible doesn't do that. Like, it simply says, make disciples. Make disciples. Because the truth is that evangelism isn't over until discipleship begins, Evangelism isn't complete until discipleship begins. Otherwise, you're not a disciple. You just got swept up in a rally. So what does it mean to be a disciple? And what does it mean to make disciples? Now, don't get me wrong here. Look, I'm not knocking large churches. I'm really, I, I really not. Like, not at all. I've been a part of extremely healthy, massive local churches where disciples are making disciples and planting churches that plant churches. We are the fruit of that in many ways. Amen? Gospel communities, these things, these places can, even though they're huge, they still can be gospel communities that feel like family, spaces and places that feel small even though they have massive amounts of people in them because Jesus and the glory of God is the centerpiece and people are the mission because it's not all about the one guy talking at you. It's about who we're all looking to and being pointed to and rallying around. This is what a local church is. This is who church people are. And I pray that God continues to bless us with that kind of healthy DNA as we go forward. But I've also been a part of massive weekly rallies. I've been a part of organizations where hundreds of thousands of decisions to follow Jesus were made with zero opportunity to, for real follow-up or discipleship. And I'm not exaggerating. We were doing nine services every Sunday. Nine. And the line was wrapped around the block outside as people are waiting to get in. At least a thousand decisions to follow Jesus every single weekend. It was like every head bowed, every eye closed. If you want salvation, raise your hand when I count to three. You ever, you ever been that? You ever seen that? Right? Yeah, he's, he's ready. He's, <laughs> right? Like one, Jesus loves you. Two, now is the time for salvation. Three, all over this room. I see that hand, I see that hand. Everybody that's supposed to have their head bowed is like, oh, looking around, I see that. You know what I'm talking about, right? And it's like, I see that hand, I see that hand. Welcome to Christianity. Next. We got, we need your seat. Again, I'm not even knocking that moment of decision for people, not at all. Like that's actually how I personally and legitimately received Jesus myself. Okay, I'm not knocking that. In fact, I've personally led countless people to Christ that way. You might even be in this room, and that sounds familiar, right? And I know that a lot of them are genuine. Praise God. But we need to understand that initially those aren't disciples; they're converts. 
Because evangelism isn't complete until discipleship begins. And in the long run, the only real disciples that were made and the real disciples that, that, that happened was because they ended up joining an actual local church after. Because evangelism is not complete until discipleship begins. So this morning, we're going to continue in our series called Church People as we walk through the last few chapters of the book of Hebrews. You guys into that or you guys sufficiently offended yet? So... Uh, but often, and, and hear me, often when society uses the term church people, it's not always very positive. And I'm not here to join the, the, the black parade of ragging on church people. Not at all. Like a lot of people have a very negative and even hostile attitude towards church people. Even church people can tend to you know, speak with a lot of negativity about other church people. But, and, and hear me, I'm not upset about those kind of like rallies. In fact, I'm really thankful for the way God has used them. Amen? But it's important to understand what church actually is according to Scripture and who church people actually are and what our role and goal and motive and purpose is. So the purpose of this series is to see church people through the eyes of Jesus Christ, not just through the eyes of the world. And when we see church people as he does, it's going to change our perspective entirely because as Jesus sees is how things truly are, right? The goal here isn't to present church people through rose-colored glasses. In fact, when we see church people as he does, we see them very differently, but as they actually are. And again, church hurt is real. Not downplaying it, but so is forgiveness. Okay? In fact, that's what we're called to do, offer forgiveness, and receive forgiveness as church people. So in this series, I hope to reclaim the why behind the what for gathering together and loving one another as God's beloved, spirit-filled, redeemed, and gospel-commissioned covenant community. We are not a perfect people, but we are perfectly loved and perfectly positioned to proclaim and demonstrate the grace of Christ to one another and a world that is in desperate need of it. And so this morning, we're going to be in Hebrews 12, verse 3 through 17. And so this is going to really hone in on the enduring call of the true Christian life. And we get a very practical insight into what it looks like to be true disciples of Jesus. So remember, a little context here. Remember that this passage is flowing directly out of chapters 10 and 11, which encourage us over and over again to draw near to God and each other. Hebrews 10, verse 24 through 25, it said this, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And then chapter 11 unloads with story after story of men and women who faithfully did exactly that. They weren't perfect people, but they leveraged their lives by faith for the kingdom of God, right? For his kingdom and his glory. And then in chapter 12, it launched directly out of that line of thought. And then it gives us this practical metaphor of a race to describe the calling on every true Christian's life. And this is what it said. We looked at this last week. Verse 1 of chapter 12 said this. Therefore, in light of all of what we've just seen in chapter 11, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, 
verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So it all sets up this next passage. That's all of this is all to set up. It sets up the next passage, which is going to further flesh out what's being, uh, or, or what being a true disciple of Jesus really looks like. And while this isn't a very popular notion, what we're going to see is that being a disciple involves a word that many people tend to shrink back from. It actually involves, brace yourselves, discipline. Dun, dun, dun. Discipline. Surprise, surprise. In order to be a disciple, it might actually require discipline. Hey, that sounds familiar. That sounds similar to each other. It's almost like they're rooted in the same word. But just saying the word discipline for many people today is like fingernails on a chalkboard, especially in church, right? Like discipline in sports or fitness or, or your career is, is difficult enough, but at the end of the day, like it's accepted by our world it, it, that's in love with themselves, right? Because you realize discipline is necessary for success in anything. And if you're trying to be successful and awesome, then you need to be disciplined. Like if you're a disciplined athlete, fantastic. If you're a disciplined student, good for you, right? But a disciplined Christian? You must be really uptight. Right? Probably like really legalistic and judgmental if you're a disciplined Christian. Maybe even hard-hearted and mean. Get that picture of like the old lady with the paddle ready to discipline all the little bad kids that are shrinking back and cringing in the corner at her presence. That's often kind of the image that we get connected with discipline in Christianity or church. But this morning I hope to redeem this very good word as it's meant to be used not as a means of shrinking back, but a means of joyfully drawing near to God and each other. Because that's the context. Because after all, how can you be a disciple without discipline? Turn with me to Hebrews 12, verse 3 through 17, and let's walk through it together. Um, and here's what I want you to get. If you get nothing else, here's what I want you to get. God's discipline is designed to draw you near and shower you with his love as his legitimate children. God's discipline is designed to draw you near and shower you with his love as his legitimate, say legitimate, children. So, what does it mean to be a disciple? Well, if it means anything... An unavoidable aspect must be discipline. The word discipline is actually used nine times in this passage. And we're given three things to be disciplined in. And the last two flow out directly out of the first, which is the most important. So here are the three things um, to be disciplined in. The first is the discipline of considering Jesus. The second is the discipline of endurance, and the third is the discipline of strengthening. All right, so let's start with the first, the discipline of considering Jesus. 
Now, if you're like, didn't we do that verse last week? Yes, we did. And we're going to do it again because of how central it is, right? This is like the hinge upon which Christianity swings. It's Jesus. We consider him. This is all about Jesus. Verse 3. Hebrews 12, verse 3 says this. Consider. Say consider. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives." What? When you hear that with a modern lens that's like every time you hear, I mean, it even he, he doesn't shy away. He uses the term chastise. What is going on here? First of all, everything flows out of considering Jesus, looking to Jesus, riveting our face to Jesus Christ, the founder and perfecter of our faith. This is what makes a disciple a disciple and church people truly church people. It's our posture towards and position in Christ. Okay? So everything else flows out of this reality. This is our commonality with each other. The only commonality that actually matters is our commonality of Jesus Christ. That's it. It's not race or culture or socioeconomic status. That has nothing to do, it, this has nothing to do with our preference or predilections. Our identity as sons and daughters of the Most High King, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, is what makes church people church people. That's it. The end. Not even language is to be a barrier. That's a whole other sermon. We're going to go Acts 2 here in a little bit. But not today. We are a family. That's what we're saying here. Because we all have the same heavenly father. And we've been grafted into this family by the blood of Jesus. So the discipline of looking to Jesus Christ and considering his relationship with God as the son of God is first and foremost the most necessary discipline we can do. Now, I want you to think about that because this is extremely intentional language that sometimes just goes over our head. Like we think about, like, Jesus is the Son of God. What does that even mean? There's an illustration in all of Scripture that's being articulated that, is, that I want you to see, and it's very vivid here, Right? Because I want you to think about this. Consider Jesus. Consider the relationship Jesus has with God. Consider the way he lived and the way he endured and the way he operated even in a fallen world. And how did he do it? As a son. As a child of God. Like he came and showed us how to live as sons and daughters of the Most High King. And then he paid the price to legitimize us all by grafting us all into that father-son, father-child, father-daughter relationship with God. This should be as mind-boggling as it feels. And if it's not, you're not paying attention. Like, think about this. After all, isn't this what he did at the cross? Like, Jesus is the Son of God, 
God in the flesh even. This is the gospel. We say it every week that God became a man. He lived a life we couldn't live. He died the death we deserve to die. And he conquered death in the grave and paved the way to eternal life. And an eternal life that starts now, not just one day when we die. You don't become sons and daughters when you die and go to heaven. You become sons and daughters when you receive the price he paid for you at the cross. That's when eternal life starts. This is who we are. He's filled us with his indwelling spirit. He calls you child. All that is his becomes ours. All the inheritance of eternity becomes ours in Christ. And all that is ours becomes his. All of our sin, all of our shame, all of our failure became him, became his. And he nailed it to the cross. And he buried it. And he conquered it. On our behalf. This is Christianity. Now notice that Proverbs 3, 11 through 12 is what's being quoted here. And the context. Like, look at this. My son. My, say son. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he received. This is what we read during worship, but who knows who wrote it? I love this. I love this. If you don't know this, this is going to be awesome. If you do, it's going to be even more awesome because you just get it deeper in you. Who wrote that? Come on, shout it out. Who knows it? Solomon. Who was Solomon's father? David. Now follow me, because this is cool. The title of the son of David was a title given to the coming Messiah. And it's a title Jesus himself received. So what we get in Proverbs is an invitation from the son of David to share in the wisdom given to him from his father. You guys tracking? You might need to go back and listen to this later. I want you to get this. It's as though we've been invited into the very relationship with the father as his children. Because that's exactly what's being demonstrated. That's what's being prophetically portrayed to us through the book of Proverbs. That's why Solomon, he didn't even know what he was doing, but he's talking, who's his father when he says, my son, my son, who's he talking about? Is he talking about his children? Maybe, or maybe he heard that from his father who was David. Either way, we're getting insight into the relationship with the son of David and his father. This is a picture of the relationship we have with God the Father through Christ the Son, who calls himself the son of David. That might make you just kind of crazy, and you're like, I don't track all of that. Go back, listen, go to community group, let's discuss it, get it in you, okay? Um, because this is the point here, is that, the, that we've been invited into this relationship with the Father as his children, This is what Jesus came to do, to graft us into the family of God as sons and daughters of the Most High King through the blood of Christ. And this is the prophetic theme that doesn't end with Proverbs. In fact, look at the last verse. I'm just going to show you how ingrained this theme, this prophetic picture actually is. Look at the last verse of the last book of the last chapter of the Old Testament. Malachi, chapter 4, verse 6, says this. 
This is the, the Old Testament ends right here. It says, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. In other words, this is really important. That's how the Old Testament ends, with this longing necessity for a redeemed father-child relationship with God and his people. And then 400 years passes and the Spirit of God is silent as the earth pines for this kind of redemption and reconciliation. And then the New Testament begins. And how does the first verse of the first chapter of the first book of the New Testament begin? Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. goes through this picture and the New Testament then presents the Son of God who came to invite all who would trust in him into his father, son, father, child relationship with God Almighty. And it's not just a formal, dry kind of relationship with him, but it's that Abba, Father. It's that intimate, daddy kind of relationship when you really catch the significance of it, it'll change you. It'll totally change you. It's that thing where there's no barriers between daddy and his children. This is where true strength comes from. This is where true security comes from. This is when we can cry out, I'm no longer a slave to fear. I'm a child of God. And Jesus perfectly displayed the kind of relationship that he was inviting us into having with the Father as a son. So our first and foremost discipline of all is to consider Jesus. Now it's easy to get caught up in the disciplines of Christianity and miss Jesus. Real easy. It's called dry religion. But doing the stuff isn't the point. We don't look to the disciplines because the disciplines aren't our Savior and King. Jesus is. The disciplines are just a means of consistently pointing us to Jesus. So we don't worship the disciplines and we don't point to the disciplines. We point to Jesus. The disciplines help us. If you're not disciplined in gathering together consistently with his church or regularly reading his word or praying or coming to community group or getting involved in a DNA group, which we're going to talk more about later, it, it's easy to feel like people are going to be upset with you. Like, or, or they're going to look down on you because you're not doing enough. You see how the enemy gets in this? Or you need to get your life together and be a better disciple, which really just means work harder at discipline. And then you lose sight of the one we're disciplining ourselves for. This is Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Because all of that stuff's just missing the point entirely. Now often when people think church people are just all about discipline, then they feel judged or shamed or constantly criticized. Maybe you see somebody else who's caught up, who actually has got the why behind the what, and they're, they're really disciplined in their walk with Jesus. And then you look at that and you think, okay, I'll never be able to do that. So you just shrink back out of that intimidation or maybe even shame and call them judgmental or assume that they're going to be mean. 
that's not what happens when you start looking to Jesus. Like, that's what happens when you look to the disciplines instead of looking to Jesus. Like, if I say, I missed you at church or community group, right? Like, if I, if I, if I say that to somebody, what's the first thing that comes to people's minds? Often, right, they're like, ooh. Right, you know? Like, they're like, ooh, there's the, my community group leaders on the other aisle of the grocery store. I'm going to go this way because I haven't been there in a while. Right? Get that nonsense out of here. If you see each other, chase each other down. You know why? Because you love each other. And you love Jesus. And it's not about that stuff. Like if I say I missed you at church or community group or whatever it is, it's because I actually (laughs) missed you. Right? It's not code for you're a horrible person. Like, it's not an attempt to shame you, right? But in a world filled with pride and shame, we tend to hear that. Why are you such a bad Christian? How come you're not at church? Huh? 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 Where were you? Huh? No. That's not how, the, that, that, that's not how we're called to live. That is how the world rolls. That's absolutely how the world motivates one another. But the truth is that if you haven't been around for a long time, and you come back, you need to know my first thought is, and I pray that it's all of yours as well, I'm glad you're here. How are you? How's your relationship with Jesus? How can we help? How can we encourage? How can we, how can we pray? I want you to hear me, all of you, very carefully. If for whatever reason, God forbid, you check out from the disciplines of church life for a period of time, And then you find yourself too embarrassed to come back because you're afraid of what other people might think. I want to go ahead and put your hearts and minds at rest. Here's what we're going to think. We miss you. We love you. How are you? And praise God you're here. That's it. How can we point to the love of God? Because that's what we do. Because that's what Jesus does. Okay? There's nothing you can do to make him love you anymore, and there's nothing you can do to make him love you any less. And that's true now, and that will be true then as well. His arms are open wide, and I pray that you know ours are too. And if you experience judgmental arms, then please offer forgiveness. And don't let that be a barrier to the arms of Christ. Follow me? Because as I said, we're not ultimately pointing to anyone or anything but him, because he's the only one able to measure up to any of it. So everything flows out of considering Jesus. And i got to speed it up here. Here we go. Again, this is not a call to consider discipline. It's not a call to consider church or the Bible or prayer or community. It's not a call to consider a particular way of life. All those things are good. Of course they're good. But they all flow out of the most primary and preeminent consideration, which is Jesus himself. Without a revelation of him, everything else is going to be just a bitter burden. This is not a call to religion. This is a call to relationship. This is not an invitation to a particular philosophy or way of life or some subjective truth. This is an introduction to Jesus Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life. He is a living, breathing person. Do you know him? If not, I hope to introduce you to him this morning. Jesus came to graft us into this father-child relationship, so consider Jesus. Rivet your hearts and minds on him. Also, also, P.S., church is not a pecking order of who is more Christian than who. 
right? It's just, sometimes people think that making disciples is some kind of like weird chain of authority or status. Like they can't learn from somebody unless they're at the top of the chain of discipline. But that's not how this works. It's just not. Jesus is at the top. We consider him. Yes, we consider one another, and we're thankful for our leaders and the cloud of witnesses that surrounds us. But the mark of a good leader and a good disciple maker is that they point everyone to Jesus. Right? And this is what church people do. We point one another to Jesus, not because we're awesome, but because he is. Secondly, is the discipline of endurance. Again, this discipline flows directly out of the first. Look at verse 7. Hebrews 12, verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there from whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Whoo! That's heavy language. There's another term for that. Maybe talk about it later. Verse 9. <clears throat> Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more subject or be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time and it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. <clears throat> so we've come here to the reason most people tend to think negatively about the term discipline. And it's that they associate or even confuse it with punishment and shame, maybe even abuse. As many of you know all too well, there's a broad range of experiences when it comes to earthly fathers. And those experiences have very real impacts on our identity as people and even the way we perceive and receive the love of God. Now, you may have had a very legitimate experience as a child. I hope you did. Like, you may have had a father who tried to love you with the love of God, a stable, committed, honorable, compassionate, and yet disciplined father. Maybe you knew that he loved you and wanted good things for you even more than you did. Like, I pray that my children know that I want their happiness and joy and good things to happen to them more than they want it. Maybe you even believed that. And so when it came time for discipline, you entered into it without much resistance because you trusted him and knew it was good for you. Anybody? Probably not. But eventually, maybe. Because you had a firm sense of your identity as his son or daughter. You had his name. You knew that he loved you because you were his, not because of what you did or did not do. So it's not punishment, it's discipline. You knew that nothing you did or did not do could make him leave or abandon you or lash out irrationally or unpredictably. Maybe you had an earthly father who lavished his love on you through generosity and affirmation and embrace. Maybe he was steadfast in reminding you of who you were and that it had nothing to do with your relationship as his child. That, like, that none of the accolades or performance had anything to do with your relationship and identity in him. And yet you still wanted to do those things because it pleased him and you loved him. Maybe that's your story. Maybe you had an earthly father 
that never did anything wrong and was a perfect shadow of the substance of God himself and even pointed to the love of God as the source of the love with which he loved you. Maybe that's you. I hope that some of you had at least some of those experiences. But the truth is that our earthly fathers often, and by often I mean always, in some way fall short. The truth is that as an earthly father, I fall short of this constantly. And for some of you, you, you may have had no experience of a father at all. And for others, you may wish that you have not had an experience of an earthly father at all because of how toxic and abusive it was. All these experiences, all of these experiences shape the way we view God. And Jesus has come to redeem that. And the way that we view discipline has been shaped by these things. But you need to hear me right now. Our earthly fathers are but fallen shadows of the true substance that we have through Jesus Christ. No matter what kind of illegitimate identity you might have, he has called you his legitimate sons and daughters. And the way we know that is when he disciplines us. Not when he leaves us alone to wallow in our own mess. His discipline is good. It's not punishment because he took the punishment of the cross. It's not payback for wrong, wrongdoing. you got to get that mess out of your head. Yes, there are consequences in this world for sin or for bad decisions, but God is not punishing you for sin. His wrath was poured out at the cross for those who have faith in Christ. Therefore, all seemingly negative experiences are simply opportunities to draw near to God and to one another. In fact, this is the characteristic of being a child of God. This is what makes you legitimate. It's when you receive his discipline. That may be difficult to grasp at first, but look, I'm serious. That's what this is saying, and any experience in the Christian walk is going to tell you, and I should say the Christian run, <laughs> will tell you and, 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 and validate that. Like often people first receive the grace of God in Christ and they have this sense of freedom and purity. You know what I'm talking about? Like almost like you feel lighter. Like all the weight of sin is lifted from your shoulders for the first time and you're like, I'm actually received by him, by grace. Right? Or maybe they think that they're much holier than they actually are as a result of that. And then life gets difficult and stress happens and then your kids start whining and you know, the harder you try to do good, the more difficult it seems to be. And it can often feel like, you know, the more you lean into Jesus, the more sinful you become. Because what's happening is that you're starting to recognize your own pride or your anger or your shame. And those sinful attitudes start coming out all over the place and it can feel like you're more sinful now than you were before. John Piper used an illustration recently of a glass of water to demonstrate how sin hides us until Jesus exposes it. And, and, and how sin hides in us and how Je the, Jesus exposes it to get rid of it, right? He said, like, uh, imagine a clear glass of water on a table, and the glass has this sediment in it, but it's all settled to the bottom of the glass because it's still and not stirred up. And then as long as the glass is still and it seems like the water is clear, and it's like, yeah, pretty holy, right? Pretty good. Then the stresses of life come along and bump the table. Then the water is stirred up and the sediment rises to the surface and the clouds then cover. The water's cloudy 
hard to see, hard to see through it. The truth is that sinfulness, that sinful sediment was always there. Your circumstances have only now just exposed the truth, and it's come out. This is what trials do to us, and the closer that you walk with Jesus, the more apparent the sin then will be because you see what clear water looks like. And then you're like, "Ah, this is not clear water. Your attitude towards that which bumped you starts to come out. The stresses of your job, your kids, relationships, past wounds, fear of missing out, discontentment, envy, grasping for control, manipulation, greed, all that stuff, whatever it is, if you're a disciple of Jesus and your eyes are on him, those things that may previously have gone unnoticed actually now bother you a lot. Before they didn't matter. Now they do. That relationship with that person who offended you is actually weighing on you right now. Before, you may have just snarked back at them or gossiped and slandered them to other people until you felt better. But now, there seems to be like a grief connected to that relationship. Like a mourning that you can't shake. This is the discipline of a good, good father. A heavenly father who wants you to walk in the freedom that he purchased for you at the cross. A father who doesn't dismiss or reject his children or abandon them as illegitimate bastards. And yes, that is the correct term. You should feel the weight of it. There are a lot of religious bastards that operate without the love of God. But he's called you to be a son and a daughter And he calls you to draw near to him as he lovingly disciplines and refines us. And by doing so, he legitimizes us as his own. You see, the opposite of love isn't hate, it's indifference. He is not indifferent to you. He loves you. The illegitimate child is the one who has no father to discipline them. Or or has a, a boy with a beard who's too cowardly to lovingly discipline them. But that's not who God is. And that's not who he's called us to be. It's not punishment, it's not abuse, it's not about egos, it's about looking to Jesus. Hebrews 12.8 is telling us that if you never experience the corrective discipline of a good and loving God, then you may well simply be an illegitimate child with no true identity in him. You may associate with Christianity, but you have no true claim to the inheritance or the name of Christ because you never truly received him as Lord and Savior. Because to be a disciple is to receive his loving discipline. And it's to draw near to him as legitimate, beloved children. Justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And he loves us too much to leave us alone, to wallow in the sin that he set us free from. So when trials and trouble and difficulty arise, we draw near to God and we draw near to one another and we don't shrink back. This is the discipline of endurance. We endure and we count it all even pure joy as James, the brother, like actual, like stepbrother, half-brother, I should say, of Jesus said in James 1, 2 through 3. And he says that, that we count it all pure joy for you know when you face trials of many kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces stead fastness. Hebrews 12, 11 just said, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it, right? 
But the discipline of endurance through difficulty is, in fact, well, difficult. And notice that the peaceful fruit of righteousness doesn't always happen in the enduring trial. So if you're like, well, I'm going to make this decision according to what gives me peace, like sometimes that's regarding like the conviction of the Spirit, and you're like, okay, I'm going to be peaceful in following you because I don't have peace because I'm running the other way. But sometimes, sometimes it's often not a peaceful thing to lean into the Spirit when your flesh really wants to lean into the sin. A lot of times we can completely ignore what the Spirit's calling us to do because we're like, well, I just don't have a peace about following what God wants me to do. That's because we have a sinful nature and it wants to draw us away from God and shrink back. Yes, that's easy. But the discipline of endurance through difficulty is, in fact, difficult, which then leads us to the third discipline, which is the discipline of strengthening, okay? So verse 12, Hebrews 12, verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Verse 16, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So he circles back here. He circles back to this athletic metaphor again. And he, remember, he's talking about running a race that's marked out for us by God. And he's speaking to a church who's already endured a lot of difficulty, and they're starting to get sloppy in the way they're running. Right? Anybody who's ever done any kind of sport, all the athletes in here, anybody that's ever done this, you know that when you're tired, you get, like, you got to be really intentional in keeping your form solid. Right? Because when your form breaks down, that's when you get injured. That's when you get taken out. Like, it's that final round that's the most dangerous one because that's when you're most tempted to go the path of least resistance and you start drooping, right? That's when we start to shrink back and swerve all over the place with a sloppy form and and a sinful mindset. Without discipline, you don't even realize that your form has broken down. You do things that you normally wouldn't do and you act in ways that are out of alignment with what you really want And that's when we lose sight of Jesus and we lose sight of the race that he's marked out for us. Maybe you start getting easily offended again or you quit giving people the benefit of the doubt. Trust may break down and you slip back into that sloppy, carnal nature again. Instead of fixing your eyes on Jesus and the secure affirmation and identity that you have in him, you look to other people for that security. And then you demonize them when they don't live up to it. Fear of being hurt, abandoned, or rejected may come out by pushing people away or being overly critical or suspicious. Instead of giving the benefit of the doubt and extending trust, you assume the worst and look for reasons to take offense. Then when you find that offense, you hold on to it like it's your own salvation. Right? Like the bitter heart can bring a kind of counterfeit comfort to those who are familiar with it. It justifies isolation and it provides a counterfeit form of security from the vulnerability of being known by others who could then potentially hurt you. 
so you shrink back, both from one another and from God. This is why discipline to strengthen those weak knees (laughs) is so important. When you feel the tendency to shrink back, it's that discipline to lean into the spirit, which is not always the path of least resistance, especially when things are difficult, right? It's that discipline. Like, like when people tell me that they've made a decision in a season of, of difficulty based on what brought them peace, again, like sometimes they're talking about the conviction of the Lord, as we said, but just leaning into that, it could be that flesh that silences the conviction. But this is one of the reasons why God has called us to share this life in Christ with each other and draw near to God and one another. This is why it's important for us to recognize that we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses because there are people who know how easy it is to develop sloppy form. They know that, like we, this is, they know, man, when you're on that last set, you have a tendency to bow your back and blow out a disc. Right? So we cry out to each other. Like, you lift up your head. Put your shoulders back. Right? Engage your core. Right? Stop heel striking. Run. Look to Jesus. We cheer each other on in the race. When somebody offends you, consider Jesus. Look to the model he laid out for us in Matthew 18. This is discipline, literally. If it's truly an offense and not just your own inflated ego, go to your brother or sister who offended you. Clear it up. 99% of the time, it's totally unintentional. And if it wasn't, it then provides the opportunity for grace and unity. But if you get sloppy... Sloppy form looks like letting your offense stew and fester and your imagination then turns it into a bigger deal than it ever was meant to be. And instead of going to that brother or sister, you complain to others and maybe even try to get them on your side to drink that bitter cup of gossip and slander with you. Now, not only are you out of joint, but you've become a minister of division and dislocation in the church, which is the body of Christ. Jesus does not like that. He, in fact, has very strong words like abomination to describe that kind of activity. But grace is available for all, even this. So he calls us instead to go to our brother and sister to win their hearts and to reunify. And if that doesn't work, then he says to bring two or three others into the situation to bring unity, not to attack or blame or or, or go after them and cause division, but to win their hearts for reunification. And then again, if that doesn't work, then it says to involve church, involve church leadership. It's, it's all designed to win the hearts of everyone involved towards unity and grace. This is actually known as church discipline. Shocker. Because it takes an intentionality. It's much easier to ignore it. Right? Now again, you don't want to become drama hounds and like, you know, if somebody sneezes, you're like, that offended me. You know, like that's not what I'm talking about. (laughs) But I want you to hear that this is not about punishment. It's about lifting our eyes to Jesus and running our race well together in unity. To lean into the spirit of God rather than our sinful flesh, even when we're tired, like the story of Esau in the book of Genesis. Right? That's why it references this. 
He was a man dominated by what his flesh desired. And in a moment of exhaustion, he sells his birthright for a bowl of soup because he was tired and he was hungry. And his flesh dominated him. He was more concerned about filling his belly than fulfilling the call of God. That's the root of all sin, an undisciplined, sloppy form. And it wasn't just one moment of desperation. Hear me. Gosh, we got to get, I've been preached for three more hours. Anyway, I'm not going to. But it just, it wasn't just a moment. It wasn't just one moment of desperation. So the sanctification process of spiritual maturity doesn't happen like most people think it does. Most people think that transformation happens in these big moments of decision, like at a conference or when you're faced with like life-changing crossroads. That's not when transformation happens, guys. The truth is that the growth of a disciple happens in all those little moments that surround the big moment, right? It's in the cracks of life. Those moments when we discipline ourselves to lean into the Spirit and draw near and to take those thoughts captive to the Word of the Lord and to lean into His people and to draw near and to lean into God and to draw near and to take those attitudes and say, that's not of God, this is true, I'm going to exercise the benefit of the doubt. This is the disciplines of reading His Word and praying and gathering and giving and serving. Even when you don't want to, just because you do those things even when you don't want to doesn't mean you're a dry religious person. It means that you're a disciple who desires Jesus more than anything else and again discipline is not our savior though Jesus is we don't point to discipline we point to Jesus discipline is the means to an end and that end is the love of God in Christ alone discipline doesn't equal holy there are plenty of type a extremely disciplined people out there who draw near to discipline but have trouble drawing near to God and one another point is Jesus. This isn't about doing better. It's about seeing him more clearly and loving him more fully and running the race that he set before us all the way to the finish line. This is what it looks like to be his disciples and to make disciples of one another, sharing life in Christ, our risen Lord, with one another and our city and beyond. This is what it looks like to be church people. Let's pray.